Open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Verse 21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. Let's pray. Father, Father, please hear us. Lord, there are people here who um, so need to grow in their understanding of the gospel. There are others who know not the gospel. Lord, there's such a wide range before me tonight. There are many who have walked with you for years and know your truth better than I. But you have me here tonight. So please, Lord, make your gospel clear Let your gospel come with power. And we plead the righteousness of Christ. His name. Our only confidence. If you do nothing, O oh God, nothing will be done. Please. Gather for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. The text that I read to you, particularly verses 25 through 26, have been called by some of the greatest theologians and preachers in the history of the church as the Acropolis of the Christian faith. The word Acropolis refers to a, a fortified city, the central city. And I believe that they are correct in that assumption. If I could only reserve one part of Scripture, it would be this one. It would be this one. In it we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We see the inner workings of the gospel. We see the mind of God. We see that mind as it is revealed in his work of redemption in a most magnificent way with unusual clarity. And you must understand it. If you do not understand this passage, you do not understand the gospel. Yes, you can understand the gospel in a very simple way and it be a saving way. A child can be understood with just a few words and yet you are not called to be children, you're called to be mature. Parrots mindlessly parrot what they have heard. But you were created in the image of God. You're to know and understand what you have heard. And you're to speak it with clarity. Some of you need to grow in your understanding of how to proclaim the gospel. And some of you may simply need to know the gospel because you do not. Neither intellectually, academically, or savingly. And so tonight... um, I do not plan on any emotion, the raising of the voice, although that may come, but is to set forth clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I would like to say one other thing. I have heard preachers say for far too long that this country is gospel hardened. It's not necessarily gospel hardened. I don't know what gives anyone the right to make that kind of call. I will say this. This country is gospel ignorant. It's gospel ignorant because most of its preachers are gospel ignorant. And so we need to understand the gospel. And we need to proclaim it. So let's go. I want to begin in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that terrify you? Has it ever terrified you? You know, you can hear something over and over and over until it loses its meaning. Remember C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? When the ship made its way into darkness and they hear screaming in the water and they pull out this man who is literally overcome with terror in this soupy black water, they pull him and the brave soldiers, the brave sailors say to him, man, what could scare you so? And he said, turn this boat around, turn this boat around, flee, flee. Why? We're not afraid. You're fools. Turn, flee. Why? This is the place where all your dreams come true. By one sailor smiled to another and as if to say, and what's the problem? And the man screamed out, you fools, all your dreams come true thinking about what was said. Finally, it sets in. The men throw themselves to the tackles of the ship and turn the boat around as quickly as possible. They had heard him, but they had not heard him. They had not understood. Today, we live in a culture that adheres. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and they laugh, and they mock. They joke. Notice that they do not deny that they're sinners. They just don't care. And why do they not care? They do not not know the one against whom they have sinned. Because so little is preached today in the modern day pulpit about the attributes of God. 
Jeremiah makes it quite clear. There is no higher knowledge. There is no supreme knowledge, preeminent knowledge above this one thing, to know God. Sometimes I have students come to me, you know, with their PhDs and all sorts of things, and I'll ask them this question. When you were in Bible college, how many years of your theological studies were dedicated to the attributes of God? They said, well, you know, I had a systematic class for two semesters, and I think we spent a few months. I go on to the master's level. How, much, how many years in your master level studies did you study God? The attributes of God. Well, you know, we had seminars on it. Few, you know, I took, yeah, a semester in systematic and, and then another, but attributes of God, I don't know, two months. Then I go to the PhD program and I go, you, doctor, how many years have you spent studying the attributes of God, the knowledge of God, who God actually is? Well, I didn't choose that kind of seminar. The church, the world, is ignorance of the, has an ignorance of the one true God, and it's deadly because the church has an ignorance of the one true God. And the church has an ignorance of the one true God because it's not being proclaimed from the pulpit. Principles, pragmatism, your best life now. How to get excited and stay there for as long as possible until you wind down like a little toy soldier. But how much do you know about God? The God of the Bible. The one Isaiah knew when he said, In the year the king Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each one having six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they did fly. And one cried unto the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said, I, woe is me, am I undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen. What? God. 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 You see, when you hear, for all have sinned, it's not really that severe a matter, is it? But what you have to understand is you have not sinned against the mayor of some small village. You've sinned against Lord God Almighty, the creator in the heavens and the earth. He told the stars to set themselves in their assigned places. And they bowed and they worshiped him. He told the planets, you will move in these orbits and you will not leave your course. And they said, amen. He told the mountains to be lifted up. He told the valleys to be cast down. He told the brave sea, you will come to this spot and go no further. And the sea worshiped. He looked at you and said, come. And you said, no. And that's why on the day of judgment, all of creation will stand up and applaud when God casts your soul into hell. Is this God too much for you? And your millennial sentiments all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you afraid? You should be. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God. If there's ever been a verse in the history of hermeneutics that has been twisted, it is this one. Oh, I know what the modern preachers tell you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you'll never realize all the wonderful things he has for you because you just would not. You sinned. That's not what this text means. This is not a proof text for your best life now. To fall short of the glory of God means this. You were made for God. You were made to worship him. You were made to carry out his will. That's what you were made for. And to do other, any other thing is to be a limb dislocated and broken and twisted. It's to be marred and shattered and made stupid and lifeless and animal-like. You chase wealth and fame and entertainment. You weren't made for that. You were made for him. And you will find yourself restless until he lets himself be found by you. You were made for him. Not for your plans, not for your purposes. For him. For him. For him. All have sinned. How much? Look in Romans 3. Verse 9. What then? Are we, that is the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already stated that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. This is a description of humanity. But don't look at humanity as just a, uh, as a collective. This is talking about you outside of Christ. This is talking about me outside of Christ. This is how God sees humanity. This is how God sees you. For there's none righteous, not even one. Isn't it amazing? The wisdom of Scripture. God knew in His wisdom it's not enough to say there's none righteous. Because immediately man would come back with a rebuttal. It's as though God is saying there's none righteous. And man goes, yeah, but not one. Not one is righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? The root idea is, is something of straight standard so you have a standard of righteousness and that is the character of God to be righteous is to be conformed to that standard to be straight with that standard to not be righteous is to be twisted another word we might use perverted that's you that's me that's humanity before God and apart from God's redeeming work. I don't know if you've ever seen in South America, we have them, but some places in North America also where 
you pull an eel out of the water and the thing has lived in the mud. It's a freshwater eel. And, you, and you've pulled it out. And it's filthy and twisting and turning. You can't even get a hold on it. It's a, it looks like a horrific creature. That's you morally. That's you morally apart from Christ, outside of Christ. That's you. Now at this point you may be asking, why don't you say that's us instead of you? Because I want you to find no comfort in the collective. I'm looking at you as an individual. God's looking at you as an individual. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Don't try to include the preacher in this. You. This is you. Imagine God's creation as a beautiful little baby wrapped in a beautiful white gown, laid in a beautiful white crib with pillows and sheets and comforters, white, pristine, and God kisses the forehead of what he has made and walks away and closes the door and comes back the next morning and finds that a serpent has climbed out of the sewer, filthy and wretched, marred the entire crib with its stench and its stink and wrapped itself around the thing that God loved and strangled it to death. You say, oh... That's a marvelous description of Satan. I'm not talking about Satan. I'm talking about you. That's what the sinner is to creation. We've marred it. We've ruined it. Our sin has led the whole world into corruption. And as we sin, each sin grows exponentially in its impact on others. A vile, a wretched, a wicked race. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. It is often said that the reasonable man will always choose the highest motive for whatever he does. He will seek out the highest motive. That is the only reasonable thing. So if you, tell, if you find me outside in my bathrobe outside my house in the middle of the night and it's freezing and you say, why are you doing that? And I say, I have no idea. You would treat me as an imbecile. But if I'm standing outside in the same bathrobe in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm and you say, why are you doing that? The house is on fire. That is wise. That is wise. And what's my point? The highest reason the greatest good for humanity is to seek God and to seek the knowledge of God. That's the most reasonable thing to do. It's the most logical thing to do. It's the most rational thing to do. But what has humanity done? There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. We were made for Him. Now, utterly useless, that's humanity, of no profit whatsoever to God. 
And then he goes on and he says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Yes, but not even one. The majority of people that I talk to on the street, oftentimes in churches and in Christian schools, will always plead their morality as the hope of their salvation. I'm good. If I had a dime for every time someone told me they were good, why are you going to heaven? Well, I'm, I'm good. Then God is a liar in your estimation because God says you are not good. There's none good, not even one. I mean, compared to an Adolf Hitler, you all may get A's and B's. But compared to God, there's none good. No Not one. And he says, their throat is an open grave. With tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. That's the way God sees a lie. Have you ever told a lie? Have you told a lot of lies? Can you count the number of your lies? You may see them as white lies, little lies. This lie is harmless lie. But this is the way God sees it. Your throat's an open grave. It's a filthy, rotten cesspool of death. And your tongue, it's like a viper. It deceives. Poison is on your lips. You see, God doesn't see the things that we, the way we see things. Let me put it this way. You don't even see the th- things the way your grandmother did. Do you understand what I'm saying? So... Only 70 years ago, there were certain things that if you did them in public, you would either be arrested or placed in a mental institution. But in your generation, they're applauded. In a matter of just 70 so years, seven decades, if your parents and grandparents could return to you, they would think you had all gone mad. So in just a space of 70 years, in the space of when this school was founded, in a hundred years, if anyone from a hundred years ago were to come back and see the morality of this country and even what you will accept and watch, they would, have, they would call you mad, twisted, evil. Mental. So how far has man fallen since Adam? How far away from God's opinion are we? All have sinned. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. The way of peace they have not known. One philosopher said, if if we have one day without war, it's simply because everyone's loading their guns. Kill, maim. Millions upon millions upon millions of infants in the womb slaughtered. 
The death toll beyond anything anyone has ever seen in humanity. To infants. And what you need to understand is God doesn't just judge individually. He judges collectively. He judges men and nations. He judges them together. Now we know that whatever the law says, or verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the cause of all of it. They don't fear God. Say, what does fear mean? Well, it means fear. If it had meant something else, they'd have wrote something else. It means fear. It is not enough to say reverence. There is a sense of awe. A sense of otherness. It's kind of like this. In the book of Revelation. When all of creation flees from his presence. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. What is the purpose of the, of the law? It has many purposes, even has purposes in sanctification. But the primary purpose of the law, and the foundation of the purpose of the law, is to expose your sin. And did you know this? Proverbs is the same. You read the law, it tells you you're a sinner and you need Christ. You read Proverbs, it tells you you are a fool and you need Christ. That's the purpose of the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. What, is the, what happens in real preaching? The preacher lays a concrete floor. The preacher puts up bars of steel on this side and bars of steel on this side and bars of steel in front of you and bars of steel behind you so that the only place you can look now is up. You are condemned. And the only way out is up. The purpose of the law is never to win you merit enough to be declared righteous before God. The purpose of the law is to drive you to the merit of Christ. Then he says in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be legally held to be right before God in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now time is going to go on and I, I, I need to move on a little bit faster. But now Paul comes with hope. In 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All the law, all the prophets, everything of the Old Testament, what is it doing? It's pointing you to your need, and then it's pointing you to the Savior. Even the curse that God put upon creation in one way is an act of mercy. Every time a woman has pain in childbirth, every time a man works and works and works in vain, God is calling out to you saying, fallen, 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 condemned, 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 turn to Christ. 
Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Christ. Christ. The young person told me one time, they were all excited and they said, yes. Christ is all we need. And I said, young man, Christ is all we have. You have nothing else apart from Christ. Nothing. The word destitute should be frequent on your lips. Apart from him, I am destitute. I don't meet him halfway. I contribute nothing to my salvation but my sin. It's not 0.99% Jesus and or 99% Jesus and 1% you. If it was 1% you, you still go to hell because you fail in the 1% and so do I. It's all of Christ. And any religion that does not teach it that way is just a stinking, vile rot of pharisaical hypocrisy. Pharisaical hypocrisy. It is Christ alone. Why did the preachers of old talk about plowing? This is plowing. This is telling you. I have worked in many impoverished countries. I have worked in places where people were starving. If I laid a bologna sandwich into the hands of Bill Gates, he'd throw it on the ground. He has no need of it. He doesn't want a bologna sandwich. I put that same sandwich in the hands of some of the poor with whom I have worked, and they would fall down on their knees and kiss my hands. You don't want God. You don't need God because you don't see your need. And maybe even some of you have joined yourself to this Christian university just so somehow you'll reap a benefit from it, but Christ is not center in your life. And your condemnation will be greater. Greater than the prostitutes, that of the prostitutes and tax gatherers because you do not play with the name of the Son of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And now Paul's going to make a turn in the passage. We turn to hope. Now he's talking to the Christian. He's already said, you cannot be right before God through your law, through your religion, through your church, through your religious affiliation, through your identification with some preacher or priest. All of that is rot. None of it works. None of it. None of it. None of it. Then he goes on to say, but being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The redundancy is intended. Being justified as a gift by his grace. He could have just said being justified as a gift or being justified by his grace. 
But he wants to be doubly sure you understand. What he's saying is, you are justified. It's a gift, 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 it's a gift. Why? Because men constantly want to say, it's my work, it's my work, it's my work. I earned it, I earned it, I earned it, I earned it. Being justified as a gift by his grace. What does it mean to be justified? It is a forensic term. It's referring to a legal position before God in which the moment the sinner trusts in Christ, he is not only pardoned of his sins, past, present, and future, but he is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That perfect life that Jesus Christ lived, that always heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that life, that righteousness, that personal righteousness of Christ is imputed to the one who believes and now forever he stands righteous before God in Christ. See, Christ is not only greater than Moses. He's greater than Joseph. Joseph would not share his coat of many colors with his brethren. Jesus shares his coat of righteousness with all those who believe in him. He clothes them so that they stand perfect before God. If you're a Christian here tonight, your legal position before God is that of one who is righteous. In fact, God will not see you even more righteous in heaven. You are righteous in His sight because of what His Son did for you. And it is all His Son. Look at it this way. All of us siblings failed. All of us failed. But our elder brother triumphed for us. He did it. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, this word justification, it is commonly applied to all sorts of religions. But I, I want you to look at something for a moment. So, if, if I walk up to some people who call themselves Christians, and said, if you died right now, where would you go? They'd say, heaven. I'd say, why? Well, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. I walk up to a, a Jewish, an Orthodox Jew, and I say, if you died right now, where would you go? I have the hope of being gathered to paradise, the way of the righteous. Why? Because I've tried to keep the law. Okay. I'm a righteous man. Okay. I go up to a Muslim. If you died right now, where would you go? I would go to paradise. Why? I've read the Quran. I followed the great pillars of the faith. I give alms to the poor. I've made pilgrimages. I am a righteous man. They all have something in common, don't they? They are righteous in themselves. You come up to the Christian, the real one. If you died right now, where would you go? The Christian says, in sin I was conceived. And in sin I was brought forth. I went astray from the womb. I have broken every righteous command that God ever made. Well, sir, how could you have any hope of heaven? 
I have a hope. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He did it all. He did it all. He did it all. Religion is never about men getting glory. It's about God getting glory for saving men. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. We're going to talk about that more in a moment, but there... I hear sometimes in Christian songs, you know, people yelling out, I've been redeemed. The Puritans used to say that there are some words that should never fall from a Christian's lip, lest the lip be trembling. There are certain words too precious to pronounce without a bowed head and a broken heart and a looking unto Jesus. Redemption is one of them. I've been bought. Yes, you, you've been bought. You have. You know, redemption, the idea of redemption is you have a prisoner, a condemned, vile prisoner. You have a slave or maybe captive in a war that's held in chains. Redemption is the payment of a price that they might go free. Now you ought to understand from the metaphor, of course, that price is not going to come from the prisoner or the slave. It's got to come from outside. It's got to be external. Why is redemption so precious? Christians who think a bit, who are mature, why is redemption so precious? Because redemption was the blood of the Son of God. Blood that flowed as he was crushed under the wrath of his own father. To whom was the redemption paid? To the devil? No. No. The redemption was paid to God. God. Yes, God. Now here's where I want you to understand something. And if, if, if you haven't listened to anything tonight, listen to this. This is very, very important. Many of the reformers, spectacular number of the Puritans, I think of William Bates and others, wrote massive volumes on this doctrine. And up until probably a hundred years ago, you would have never even heard a gospel sermon without this doctrine being at the forefront. And this doctrine is this, the harmony of the attributes of God. When a theologian says that God is perfect, you think, well, he's without sin. Well, he is without sin, but that's not really the idea here. You see, you and I, we have attributes, don't we, and characteristics, and, and they're mutable and changing, and they're completely out of harmony. There's no harmony in our natures. But you see, God is perfect. And God's attributes harmonize perfectly. 
Sometimes I hear these silly preachers say, you know, instead of being just with you, God was merciful. Well, that presents a theological problem, doesn't it? I 